Welcome to Downton. Hello there. Emma speaking. Welcome to Shall We Go Through, the Downton Abbey fan podcast. What? 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 Hi, everyone. I hope you're all doing well and that those of you who had the chance to see the movie loved it as much as I loved it. When this episode will come out, the movie will not be available yet in the US, but almost you have a couple of days to wait. It is worth it. I know the like the waiting is so long, but it is worth it. Oh my God, I'm going to see it again this week. It is so good. But yeah, I well, obviously, I think those of you who were able to see the movie, you're all doing great, I think. And those who still have to wait a bit, well, uh, I'm with you in spirit. But yeah, today we're here to talk about episode six of season one that I called the one where they fall. So it's not as obvious as the other titles, but I will explain it in the end. There's a lot to talk about in this episode. So yeah, let's start, shall we? So now we're in May 1914 and we're gonna start by talking about Bates so well now Bates knows that Thomas took the wine because you know last episode uh, Thomas went to accuse Bates of being a thief uh, when he stole a snuff box and well it didn't work so Thomas is a bit like he's not in a good situation right now because Bates knows that he's a thief and he can use it as an advantage and he even, you know, he tells him, like, says to Thomas, I know you don't believe in rights of property. So, you know, it's, uh, it was tense before, but it's even more tense now. And obviously, uh, Thomas wants to get rid of Bates before he has a chance to get rid of him. Now, obviously, it's tricky because we already said that, but the easiest way to get rid of a servant is to accuse him of theft. And so, well, again, Thomas is not in a good situation. But again with O'Brien they're plotting and she has a plan to well still accuse him of theft but this time do not invent one because something has already been stolen because Thomas stole the wine so they want to accuse Bate of stealing the wine and for that Thomas he uses Daisy because there's a scene when Thomas just tells her would you do that for me I'd do anything for you and at that moment, you see something in his eyes, like, okay, I'm going to use that. So together, Thomas, O'Brien and Daisy, they're going to accuse Bates of stealing the wine. And they're going to go to Carson to tell him that. And obviously, O'Brien is going to invent something that she saw him with bottles of wine. Like, she, I mean, she doesn't care, you know. And this whole situation, where obviously Anna is on Bates' side, it's like, why don't you report him? Because if you report Thomas to Mr. Carson, I mean, your problems would be uh, solved because Thomas would be gone. But Bates tells her... But I don't want anyone to lose that job because of me. Even Thomas? Even after what they tried to do to you? Even then? So at the moment, you still think that Bates, deep down, he's a good man. Because, to be honest, I think I would have used that. I think I would have told everyone, well, Thomas is a thief, let's just get rid of him. But he doesn't want to. So maybe there's something more to just that, you know. And well, Daisy, she feels bad because she lied. Because Thomas asked her to. So she feels bad about it. And she has a chat with William. And it's what he says to her that makes her open her eyes. And William is talking about his family. We learned that she never really had a family. 
And William says, there's no lies in our house. And you can see by the way she looks at him that she just realized that what she did was wrong. I mean, she takes a good time to think about it because when she's in the kitchen with Mrs. Papmore, she's, it feels like she's somewhere else. She's not really there. Even Mrs. Papmore makes fun of her. Do these biscuits go up? No, I put them out for the fairies. Oh. Of course they're going up. What's wrong with you? You're always dozy, but tonight you'd make Sleeping Beauty look alert. I just love to talk every time about Mrs. Papmore because we already said that, but she has one of the best lines. But it's when she, Daisy, tells herself, I think I've let myself down, that she realised that, yeah, now she just realised what Thomas asked her to do was not right. So then she's going to see Mr. Carson to tell him that she lied. And then we have the truth about the missing one. I really like this scene when Carson wants to go through it again. He said to Thomas, well, but your story, I don't have a story for it. Well, you saw Mr. Bates stealing some bottle of wines for me. That is a story. And obviously without Daisy saying that she even saw Bates in the cellar, the whole uh, accusation doesn't stand. Well, O'Brien, she's still on it, you know, like she's like, yes, yes, I've seen him with bottles of wine. Like, okay, girl, everyone knows that you just lied, and she, but she just, she stays on it. And actually, Carson, he never really believed the accusation. Uh, Mrs. Hughes neither. Well, Anna, obviously she didn't. But so, like I said, you know, when I talked about episode two and episode three, when Bates had some private moments with uh, Carson and Mrs. Hughes that made them respect him more, that served him. Like he, they use that now because they realize they do have respect for Bates and this whole accusation of stealing is just, it's completely bullshit. Well, that's what they think about. But then um, Carson, he's, he doesn't really know where to stand because he says Bates knew that someone were missing. It's like, wh- how did you knew if you didn't, stole them and Carson is a stupid I do believe he thinks it's Thomas but Bates doesn't want to say so he's still on the fact that he doesn't want to say who stole the wine and then so Carson uh, Mrs. Hughes Anna and Bates they talk about this because Bates wants to talk to them and say I was drunk and I was in prison as a thief and so maybe it's the reason why he doesn't want anybody to choose this job because of him, because he kind of has a second chance because now he has a great position in a great house. So it feels like if he had another chance, maybe even Thomas deserves one. That's how I think about it. So now that he told them his secret, he gives them his resignation. But obviously Carson doesn't want it because he's like, okay, we learned that but he thinks there is more to just this simple story like I stole something and I was in prison like if he's a more to that so he doesn't want the resignation he wants to think about it and he wants to talk about it with his lordship because obviously everyone's a bit um like surprised when he says that because if everyone knew you were in prison as a thief I mean there there would be no way for you to work as a servant in a big house but again, like we said, Carson, he has a lot of respect for Bates and Mrs. Hughes too. And obviously both of them do not trust Thomas and O'Brien. So he doesn't want to, he wants to think about it and maybe dig a bit deeper into this whole situation. And we have a scene between Bates and Anna. She never believed that question. We already said that she's in love with him. So she never believed it. And they're together outside in the dark. And... 
you know, she's like, well, I never believed it. No one believed it. And it's like, you, you need to let me go. Like, I'm not good enough for you. And he says, like, go and dream of a better man. And she answers, I can't because there isn't one. I think it's really sweet because even if she knows that he was in prison as a thief, she believes deep down that there's something more to it because I think she kind of knows him a bit better. And at that moment, they almost kiss. Like, they're bound to kiss. Like, they're, like, almost kissing. And there's a noise and Anna comes inside. But they almost kiss. I mean, Now, let's talk about William. Because William has a tiny storyline in this episode. And I like it because he's so sweet. And like I said, this is what I love about Downton is every character at at least one storyline and it's great because you learn more about them and what I like is that in this storyline it actually involves Lady Mary which I think is even better because if you watch like the three daughters uh Sybil has a storyline with Gwen and well in Edith and Mary are definitely not the one you think would be they're not unkind to servants but not the one really helpful but we already said that Mary since the Pomuk situation she kind of changed and I love this scene, the first scene between Mary and William. She comes back from riding and her horse is lame. And so he takes care of a horse. He says he, he can't do it because he knows how to, since he took out the horses in uh, his parents' farm. And so she's intrigued. She's like, oh, why didn't you stay there? My mother wanted me to have a chance of bettering myself. He's a second footman. It's a good place for me, my lady. Of course it is. I'm sorry. At first, she makes fun of him because obviously for her, bettering themselves as a second footman, it's like, it's nothing. But then she apologized really quickly because she realized that she was rude and unkind because obviously she was raised as a lady, maybe to be the next, the next Countess of Grantham. So at first, she thinks it's kind of a ridiculous idea, but then she realized not everybody has the same chances that she had or were born, you know, in the same world that she had. It makes me think about in the first episode when she says, I always apologize when I'm in the wrong. Is exactly what happened here. And I really like this. And it's really sweet. And so William takes care of Diamond, so Mary's horse. You know, he it's the scene when he talks with Daisy about his family. And then we have Cora and Mary outside. And Isabel comes to see them to talk about William's mother. Because apparently she's very ill. But she doesn't want uh, her son to know that she is very ill. So Isabel is kind of conflicted because, well, you know, she, if his mother is really ill, she doesn't have long to live. So she would like William to see her. She even asked Cora, you wouldn't mind if he could go, you know, for a couple of days to, to see her. And she's like, well, of course not. But then she says, well, what should we do? Because the mother forbidden them to say anything to her son. So Cora and Isabel agreed that if the mother forbidden it, what well, they can't tell him because she has rights and this is the rule technically. But Mary, she wants to tell him. She says, well, that's absurd. Like he has to go and see her. I don't care a fig about rules. And you can see that Mary is concerned by this whole situation with William because when she's at Crowley house, she asks Isabel about William's mother, if she's, she's better or not. And Isabel tells her that she's, she went home, and, but she's getting worse, but she still doesn't want William to know. Then 
Mary said a line that it makes me sad when I hear her say that. He's made her proud. There are plenty of children in grander circumstances who would love to say the same. Like I said, she's more vulnerable since the whole Pemuth incident. She's softer and you realize that there may be a part of her, I'm not going to say admire William, envy him because of that. You know, when she says he made her proud because I do believe that she would love to make her parents proud. And then she goes to talk to William when she's riding again. And she tells him that she heard someone mentioning that his mother was not well. And that, well, she said, you should maybe go to see her and that she will arrange um, his journey back home. She would take care of everything. There would be no inconvenience. I like the way she does it because she was very smart because she can't tell him, oh, I knew it because Mrs. Crawley was there. She knew it. She told me. No, she does it in a way that doesn't really break the rule. I just love how she does it. And again, I think she cannot envy him because we already know that she's conflicted with the whole air situation since Matthew arrived because now Robert, well, he really likes Matthew and she feels like she feels like she's a disappointment because she was not a boy. And then with the Pamuk's incident, she feels like she also let down her mother. She let down herself. So yeah, I, I, I really like those scenes. I already said that, but I like the post Pamuk Mary. But there's so many other moments where Mary just set my teeth on edge, like, ugh. but that's for later. But yeah, again, it was really sweet to see Mary interacts with another servant than just Anna or Carson. To contradict what she said, she does have a heart. So we already talked a bit about Mary by talking about William. Let's talk about Edith. So last episode. Edith tried to get Sir Anthony Strahan's attention and, you know, she, she managed to do it, but then she kind of lost it against Mary. We already talked about that. There's a scene of Cora and Robert in her bedroom, you know, recurrent scene. In their conversation, they talk about different storylines. So I just pick what concerns Edith for now. Poor old Edith. We never seem to talk about her. I'm afraid Edith will be the one to care for us in our old age. What a ghastly prospect. I just love how he says that. Just before he says that, the look on his face is like, uh, yeah, no, that doesn't sound nice. And I just want to mention the line written in the script book that follows this um, dialogue. It says, for Edith or for them, he does not make clear. Like, it doesn't make clear if it's a ghastly prospect for Edith to take care about her parents, or it's for them. <laughs> Which I think is even funnier, if you think about it in both ways. But I just want to say, finally, they acknowledge that Edith is a bit left out by both of her parents. Like, they never talk about her. It's always, well, it's always been Mary for now. And obviously, we can understand why, because Pamuk situation that Robert doesn't know anything about, but... And then you have Sybil. So Edith, actually, she's the less problematic daughter. Well, less problematic. She did wrote a letter to the Turkish ambassador, but we're going to talk about that later. But I just want to say, it's not really nice for Robert to say poor old Edith. Like, Mary is older than her. And I don't know, I think it's not really nice. Especially that when you have Cora making everything she can to get Mary settled. 
And Robert's like, yeah. It's almost like, yeah, but she's too young. But poor old Edith, like, really poor her. Like, I, again, Edith is definitely my, not my favorite daughter, not in the first season. But, I mean, her parents are not on her side. So I can understand why she would react the way she does. Because her parents just realized that they never talked about her. We talked about Sir Anthony and Sir Anthony is back. He might be interested in Mary because she is the oldest daughter. He might be interested in Mary and Cora is literally pushing Mary at him. Because, well, she needs to get her daughter settled, you know, since the Pamuk situation. But <laughs> Mary doesn't care at all. She already said, you know, I, I never marry a man I was taught to. But she, the way she acts is almost rude, like, oh, do ask me again, but no, <laughs> I'm not available. He, because Sir Anthony is back uh, because he wanted to show her his new car. But again, she's like, oh, no, I'm riding. Bye-bye. And you see, Cora, she's a bit desperate. And I feel sorry for her. But then Edith tries her luck and asks him if he would want to take her. And well, she's, you know, she's still in the, if Mary doesn't want that guy and I find him nice, maybe I can have a go. That, that's, I think that's how she thinks. And again, I'm still on her side like, yeah, go, try. You have nothing to lose. So she asks him if, you know, he could take her. And you can see that he's not completely delighted because it was not his plan. But he can't really refuse because she literally asked him in front of him, like face to face. So it would be rude to refuse. But then they ride together and everything goes well. Like you can see that they go on really well and they make jokes and it, something happens. And, you know, I'm not, the guy is really old. I think he's even older than Robert. So for me, Edith to be interested in that man, I mean, I do not want her to marry him, but I feel good for her that finally someone take an interest in her, you know, like really as her Edith. And I think she needs that. And she's really delighted that for once in her life, someone kind of liked being in her company. And then one evening, Strand comes in, uninvited. But he comes to invite Edith to a concert. And I love the scene because they're all surprised because he wasn't invited. It's like, a, why are you doing this? Oh, no, I was just, you know, in the neighborhood. I just wanted to have these tickets for a concert. And I would be like, and so at that moment, you have Cora just turning to Mary because obviously she thinks he wants to invite Mary and Mary she's like oh no I'm not available and then Strand just stops her it's like oh no I was wondering if Lady Edith might go with me and Robert is surprised like oh like the daughter that no one ever talks about like you want to go with her and Edith's like oh yes she doesn't even like feign to be oh maybe I'm busy no I would love to go but yeah, and so the, everybody is surprised and even crushed. Like, yeah, by all means, take her. Like, yeah, that's nice. And I like what Robert says to Cora. We may have to hire a nurse after all. And Edith is pleased. She even wants to say she's over the moon. And I can understand her because, like I said, finally, a man wants her not just because they couldn't have Mary. Because first it was that. But now he really likes her he liked her company and he wants to spend more time with her so i can understand she never had that but mary's oh my god mary's look at that moment if luke could kill edith would be dead you know the whole war mary edith what i don't like in this was that no one is especially not mary is mature enough to say well it's enough i'm gonna stop it 
You know what I mean? Like when one win, the other has to strike back because the other wants to win. And especially Mary, if you just see the whole show through every season without giving away too much, she wants to be the one who wins. At that moment, Edith is kind of happy, you know, we can say that, but she still have to pick on her because of that. That's why I think I always say Sybil is the best because they are not mature enough to, at one moment in their life, say stop to the fight, especially Mary. Like I said, Mary, she really grew on me this season, but every time it's about Edith or even sometimes her own mother, I'm like, girl, you need to stop it. Like I said, Sybil is the best. So let's talk about Sybil and Branson. Um, so Sybil is at a rally for women's rights and Isabel is here too and she convinced her to come home because it starts to be a bit too agitated and she said, you know, it's better if you come home now because if something happens to you, Branson is there. And you can see that her and Branson are getting closer. They talk together in the car and, you know, he even says, well, I don't want to speak badly of his lordship. It's like, well, why? You don't approve of him. And I like when he says that it's not as a person that he disapproves him. It's as a representative of an oppressive class. So if Robert was not from the aristocrats, he would have no problem with him because he said he's a good man and a decent employer. And I think that that qualifies Robert and Cora too, that they are really decent employers. And so everybody who has a chance to work in this house are quite lucky because they're good employers and well this dinner scene is quite um awkward like you really feel yeah awkward to this dinner scene because robert is angry he's angry that sybil went to the rally without his permission he blames branson obviously and well actually he didn't know and he wasn't supposed to know but he learned it by Bates and. Bates actually really feels bad that he started the, the conflict because he didn't want it to. And so while Cora tries to calm the whole thing, saying, I asked Branson to take her. And Sybil, well, she just then talks about politics, and she says that she wants to do some canvassing. And Violet is like, it's a mixture of astonished and angry. <laughs> and, and I really like it because there are two teams on that table. We have one side, you have Violet, Roberts, and Edith. And the other side, you have Sybil, Cora, and Mary. And so you have Cora and Mary. Well, Mary is on Sybil's side. Cora is too, because I think Cora is always on Sybil's side. And you have the other that are against her. Well, not really Edith, but Edith, she just tries to be somewhere. You know, she tries to find her place. Mary tries to save Sybil. I was only going to say that Sybil is entitled to her opinions. No. She isn't until she is married. Then her husband will tell her what her opinions are. And, well, Mary's like, oh, yeah, great. Obviously, she doesn't approve of that. Sybil, she's, you know, she's like, I knew you wouldn't approve. But Robert is also angry at Cora. And through the whole scene, you can feel that she's kind of hurt. She doesn't feel comfortable. Even Thomas says, The ladyship will have a smack bottom if she's not careful. Not really a nice way to talk about your employers, but anyway. And so we learned that Sybil is supposed to be presented in June, so next month, because we're in May. Does this mean you won't be presented next month? Certainly not. Why should it? 
Well, I doubt I'd expect to curtsy to their majesties in June when I'd been arrested as a riot in May. But then I'm old. Things may be different now. She hasn't been arrested and it wasn't a riot. But it might be next time. There will not be a next time. Sibyl, I mean, the way she answers back, you can see that she has taken position. Like, she really starts to detach herself from her parents and her family having her own life. She started it already last episode. Yeah, and Cry, she tries to calm the situation. She's like, calm down. All's well that ends well. She's here. She's home safely. Should we just skip and talk about something else? Robert is still very angry. But I think the thing he's more angry is that, is that she did, he didn't know. And that he feels like, also, everybody knows everything except me. But I just want to tell you, Robert, there are so many things that happen in this house that you are not aware of. Like, I don't know where to start. Um, so then you have this scene in Cora's bedroom that I talked about before. Uh, Robert apologizes for his behavior towards Cora. So yeah, at least he apologized. But her answer, I mean... Next time you want to treat me like a naughty schoolgirl, you might do it in private, not in front of the servants. I don't know if it's just me. No, I know it's not just me. I know. It's in the whole corporate fandom. But, I mean, this line, there's a double and tender in it. I mean, we know Cora is the queen of double and tender. Like, we haven't seen it already, but we're going to see that in the following seasons. Bananas. But, like, really... I think it's the word naughty and oh my god yeah well it's just thinking every time someone said naughty the first song that comes into my mind is um naughty girl by beyonce it's not my song of of the day i just want to make that clear but yeah and so robert is really concerned about sybil it's like we need to keep control of sybil and cora is like well sybil is not your problem so then Sybil, she tries to convince her father to let her go on Friday. And obviously like, uh, no, like there's no way. But she is scared. She, well, she's lying to him and she persuades him to let her go. Um, because we know, I mean, we're not stupid. We know she wants to go to, um, well, we know it's something to do with the elections, but she lies to him. Like we said, this is the moment she really starts to detach herself from her parents to have kind of a private life. Uh, so she already started that uh, in the previous episode with her new frock, you know, that she chose herself, something new and exciting. You realize that now she really wants to have the life that she wants her to have and not the one that everyone expects her to have. I like when um, Robert asks her, Why are all your causes so steeped in gloom? Because it's the gloomy things that need our help. If everything in the garden is sunny, why meddle? I talked earlier about Sybil and Gwen. The interview that she had, it didn't work out. And so she stopped believing that she can be a secretary. Sybil, she's like, you know, we'll get there. She tries to stay positive. And I love what Gwen says. Give me my lady, but you're brought up to think it's all within your grasp that if you want something enough, it will come to you. But we're not like that. We don't think our dreams are bound to come true because, because they almost never do. And that's why we must stick together. Your dream is my dream now. And I'll make it come true. And there's a very interesting comment from Julian Fellows in the script book. He says, Privileged people are often slow to understand what an advantage they have been given 
because they have grown up in a world of the possible. And that exactly explained the whole situation. It also explained like, you know, the little talk between Mary and William. I like this, you know, because they, people from upstairs need to acknowledge that the life is different if you do not come uh, from their own world. But Sybil is not giving up. And well, so Sybil managed to persuade her father to let her go. And she wants to go to the counting of the vote. But Branson didn't know. He really thought she's going to go to one of her meetings. And so the moment they arrived there, he's worried. Because like, well, I mean, this is not going to end well. Like, he is worried. And well, he has reasons to be. Because um, there's a start of a riot. Then there are people that just want to have a fight. And Matthew just arrives because he worked late. And he saw Sibyl and he's like, oh, well, you need to come home. Like, this this is not going to end well. And then again, riot, fight, and Sibyl falls and she hits her head. So, well, Brenton, he's, like, he's starting panicking. He's like, oh, my God, no, please, no, please, no. I mean, because, well, first, if something happens to her, he's going to lose his job and maybe his life because Robert would kill him. But you realize that he's starting to have feelings for her. So, obviously, it's more even the please don't let anything happen to her because I really like her. So they uh, bring her to Crawley House and Branson looks for Mary and he brings her to Crawley House too before bringing Sybil home. And then this scene, I think it's funny, but I will explain why. So Robert is very, very, very angry because Sybil disobeyed him and we can understand him, you know, like he's like, he's still a parent and it's the whole situation. I think if nothing happened to her, he would have been angry, but a bit less. But now it's even more like he's like, okay, I blame Branson. You you were hurt. And he's really angry. But Sybil, she is angry too. I mean, she she has a strong character. And she doesn't, tell him, she doesn't want him to blame Branson. See, it's me. You know, I made him take me there. He didn't know. And actually, this whole scene kind of makes me laugh because... Robert, he's literally screaming and you have Matthew in the hall waiting and he hears Robert shouting and, you know, he feels like a bit embarrassed, like I'm not supposed to be here. It's a bit like, you know, when you are at your friends and when their parents are angry at your friend and you witness the whole thing and you don't know where to be, you know. It's a bit like, you know, in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, when Harry arrives uh, at the borough with Ron and the twins and Molly Weasley is so angry at them because they took the flying car and they're really angry and she just starts like oh no I'm not angry at you Harry dear I mean it's not your fault I just love this because it's exactly like that you, Matthew is like it's not our own embarrassing situation and it's funny too because Sibyl is so angry it's like no I, I would run away and Robert's like oh yeah I'll run away, I warn you. Oh, and where would you go? Well, I can't think now, but I will go. You'll be sorry. I should be sorry. Very sorry indeed. He goes to uh, thanks Matthew, but he still blames Brenton a bit. But he thanks Matthew for being there and rescuing her. It's definitely not the end of Sybil and her discovery of politics. So we talked about Mary a bit. We talked a bit about Matthew. Let's talk about Mary and Matthew. Because they grew a bit closer in the last episode. But, you know, he was really hurt by Mary's behavior. Last episode, you know, when she ditched him 
for Stratton. So here we have a beautiful scene. But I think it's very beautiful because I think that Mary is so pretty in that outfit. When she is sitting on the bench and Matthew comes and sits next to her. But he's here because he wants to talk uh, with Robert. But now he just saw Mary's like, what? <laughs> what, was that? what was I supposed to say to Robert? I forgot Mary's here. She's way more important. And, you know, they're flirting. And now every time they talk together, they're literally, they're flirting. What's new at the big house? Sybil, mainly. She's discovered politics, which, of course, makes Papasi red. I admire Sybil's passion, though. Of course. But then I like a good argument. Papa does not. If you really like an argument... Yes? We should see more of each other. We, we knew that he was smitten. We know that he loves her. We know that for quite a while now, but... When he says that we should see more of each other, the way she reacts to that, she's not insensitive to his charms. And then later, when Mary uh, picks up Sybil at Quarry House, she notices Sybil's look to Matthew. When he helps her uh, get up, you realize that she looks at him differently. Matthew, not really, but like Sybil, there's a moment you almost feel like, okay, she just fell in love with Matthew. And you can see that Mary, she noticed that. Well, actually, I even say Isabel noticed that. And so after Sybil um, got home, at home, Mary and Matthew are alone in the dining room together. And she thanks him for rescuing Sybil. And this whole conversation, I love it. I really love it. I think it's one of my favorite scenes of the two of them. Because, again, it's a lot about talking and saying things by saying in it's another way. I don't know if you know what I mean. When you laugh with me or flirt with me, is that a duty? Are you conforming to the fitness of things, doing what's expected? I love it because he knows her. He knows how she works, the things that she says. Don't play with me. I don't deserve it, not from you. You must be careful not to break Sybil's heart. I think she has a crush on you. That's something no one could accuse you of. Oh, I don't know. I assume you speak in a spirit of mockery. You should have more faith. Shall I remind you of some of the choicest remarks you made about me when I arrived here? Because they live in my memory as fresh as the day they were spoken. Uh, yes, can we talk about, you know, Andromeda and the sea monster? Oh, Matthew, what am I always telling you? You must pay no attention to the things I say. And they kiss. Yay! Woo! I mean, when you realize that he was the sea monster, but he, I mean, I told you, you know, sometimes the monster, he just needs to be kissed and he's a prince. So yeah, apparently the sea monster is actually Perseus. I like that story better. And obviously you're like, oh my God, I'm not going to say we waited for that since episode two, but yeah, a bit. let's be honest. I just wanted to say something because so, you know, the whole like, Sybil might have a crush on Matthew. It's Alan Leach who said that, but his character was not supposed to be here for a long time in the show. And in the origins of Downton Abbey, I think Sybil and Matthew were supposed to end up together. And everything's changed because I think of, well, the actors, the chemistry and stuff and what the people loved. But that would have been weird, Sybil and Matthew. I don't know about you, but... Maybe it's because we know it's not going to happen. So, well, after that scene, Mary, she goes to Cora's bedroom. Oh my God, I love this scene so much because I think it's really funny. 
I hope you thank Matthew properly. I got them to make him some sandwiches. It's not quite what I meant. And he asked me to marry him. Heavens, what did they put in them? I mean, her reaction every time. <laughs> I love it. I'm serious. He proposed to me. Oh, my dear. Have you given him an answer? At that moment, she tries not to be really happy and really and relieved because, well, this is like the best thing that ever happened to her since, well, a long time. Only that I'd think about it. Well, that's an advance on what it would have been a year ago. Do you want to marry him? I know you want me to marry him. What we want doesn't matter. At least it's not all that matters. Do you love Matthew? Yes, I think perhaps I do. I think I may have loved him for much longer than I knew. When she says that, it makes me think about Robert instantly. But my vision of Robert falling in love with Cora, because I do believe he was in love with her for much longer than he thought he knew. Because, you know, he's very slow too. You know, the time it took him to understand he wasn't, I'm sure he wasn't way, way early in the marriage. I'm really sure about it. I'm convinced, actually. Oh, my darling. Let's not pretend this isn't the answer to every one of our prayers. Like, let's not pretend this is like a sign of God right now in all the prayers I've been doing since Pamuk. <laughs> and she says something else, but we will talk about it in our following intrigue. Then after that, Robert comes in. And he's a bit um, surprised that his wife is not alone. And I love when Mary says, I hope you know that really smart people sleep in separate rooms. I always keep the bed made up in the dressing room, so at least I pretend we sleep apart. Isn't that enough? No, never mind. And I love this because I like the fact that in season one, they pretend that they sleep apart. Only in season one. Bananas. So when Mary talks with Cora, I know, and Cora is so happy because finally, Mary, she might accept Matthew, she's gonna get married, everything will be right, she'll be settled, like, you know, best news of the day, of the year. But then... I'd have to tell him. Oh, is it absolutely necessary? If I didn't, I'd feel as if I'd caught him with a lie. To be honest, I don't know what I would have done if I was Mary. But I can give her the fact that she wants to be honest, you know, and I can understand her wanting to be honest. But I just love Cora's face, like, oh, really? Because you really believe that Matthew proposing to Mary would be the end of the Pamuk scandal? Obviously not. Because Carson received a letter. And we can see by his reaction that it is bad news. And we realize he's concerned because he never rung the dressing on, which is unusual for him. So we like, what happened? Because the last time he had a letter, he was a bit concerned was the whole situation with Mr. Greg. Well, he has a chat with Cora about the letter. So we learned the letter is from a friend of his who is a valet of the Marquess of Flincher. And then we learned that Lady Flincher, so his wife, is his lordship's cousin. And so the Marquess of Flincher is a minister at the foreign office. And he has dealing with the Turkish ambassador. Obviously, you, when you hear that, you're like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And at the moment, you are literally Cora. Like, you see how her face changes. And she looks worried. But she tries not to appear worried because, obviously, she tries to have a poker face. But, well, <laughs> the whole letter is about... A scurrilous story concerning Lady Mary and the late Mr. Pamuk. 
And when Cora reads the letter, she tries to stay calm and impassive. I did try to inform his lordship. What? There is a tiny moment of panic, like, what? But I couldn't seem to find the right moment. Quite right. Please leave his lordship to me. Well, we know that if Carson would have said that, Robert would be dead. So he's still alive, so obviously he doesn't know. And so we, we go back to our little COVID scene in Cora's bedroom when she tells him, believe me, Robert, Sybil is not your problem. Because she's really insisting on it's time Mary was settled. And you realize that Robert, he's a bit, I think Paul is still surprised how she really wants Mary to be settled. But he doesn't know why. So, you know, I can't blame him. Because even Cora says, we need to support Mary when we're in London. And Robert is, is like, why? It's Sybil's first season. I mean, Mary, I mean, why? It's not right for Sybil. And Cora is like, well, if you knew what I know, you would agree with me. And we have a scene between O'Brien and Cora when uh, O'Brien brings Cora her breakfast tray. And Cora asks her how everything is downstairs. So I like it. I like this scene because you realize that Cora really cares. Like she really cares about the people that works in this house. And I really like this scene because I think she's very, very pretty. Really. She's so pretty. I do not look like that when I woke up. Honestly. And then so O'Brien, she just says that Carson is a bit down. Because he found something unpleasant about someone he admires. At that moment, you see Cora, she's like, oh, no. Because she knows that Carson really um, loves Mary. And she's like, oh, no. And obviously, she's very tense because she thinks this person, it's Mary. And she asks O'Brien, say, you know who that is? And then O'Brien said, well, it's Mr. Bates. And Cora, when O'Brien leaves, she's like so ready. It's like, oh, my God. And to be honest, every time someone mentions him, I'm really tense. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> because this is, this is Kendall. And then one of my favorite scenes from this episode. I even want to say my favorite, but I always say that a lot. So we just said one of my favorite. Cora is at the Dower House. Violet received a letter from Susan Flincher. But we already heard that Flincher name before. And Susan Flincher, so it's um, Robert's cousin. It's Violet's niece. And so I just love how this scene is made because Violet is tending while Cora is sitting and she's reading the letter and everything, how it's made, it's so good because she started to read the letter and we learned that the name of Lord Flincher is Hugh because we will see that character later on and they never said his name. It's always his nickname. So we do know his name is actually Hugh. I am sorry to have to tell you that Hugh has heard a vile story about your granddaughter Mary. And she's about to read the rest and she just stops because, well, the story, we already know what it is. And her face. And, you know, and obviously, Violet is like, well, is any of this true? I see. Some of it is true. How much? Oh, dear. She didn't drag him. She couldn't manage it alone. I helped her. She woke me up and I helped her. Oh, my God. Violet's face at this moment... I always thought this family might be approaching dissolution. I didn't know dissolution was already upon us. Does Robert know? No, and he isn't going to. Of course, it was terribly wrong. It was all terribly wrong, but I didn't see. What else? Please, 
I can't listen to your attempts to try and justify yourself. I know this is hard for you to hear. God knows it was hard for me to live through. But if you expect me to disown my daughter, I'm afraid you will be disappointed. And it's like, good day, and she leaves. Everything, how is, this scene is made. And Cora is so pretty, I need to stop saying that. It's just, I love this scene. I have nothing more to say than that. I just love this scene. And we can sense that there's a bit of relief for Cora to finally let go of this secret. Because it's not just, you know, a tiny, like, not important secret. It's like, I think this have eaten her a bit. Like, I don't know if I can say that. I don't know if you understand. But again, I think she really, a part of her wanted to say that to Robert, but she knew she couldn't because he would have died or said that. And so I think she can breathe a bit because she shared it with someone. And this someone is Violet. And Violet is like the best at keeping secrets. So, you know, because she's the only one who knows it's true because Carson is like, well, uh, I'm sure it's wrong because uh, Mary, it's Mary, it's Lady Mary. And even when there has been rumors about Mary, Robert's like, well, my daughter, no way. So, yeah. And now I wanted to give you my French word of the day because, well, we had two important letters in this episode. So my French word of the day would be the word letter, which would be very, very easy since it's almost the same in French. Letter in French is lettre and it's feminine. So it's une lettre. It's almost written the same. It's L-E-T-T-R-E. You know, in English, it's E-R and in French R-E. So it's, it's really easy, but I thought, you know, it was important. So a letter is une lettre. Okay, so let's go back to Carson, who's uh, struggling with the news that he just had about Lady Mary. And in the scene with Mrs. Hughes, he says, It's very hard to hear the names of people you love dragged in the mud. You feel so powerless. And at that moment, since they were just talking about Bates, Mrs. Hughes, she thinks he's talking about Bates. Like, well, I respect him, but I can't really say I love him. She's like, ooh, Mr. Carson, what happened to you? And Carson's like, well, I didn't thought about Bates. And this scene, uh, actually, I think is a nice parallel with the scene uh, with Cora and O'Brien, because when O'Brien says that he learned something unpleasant about someone, Cora immediately thinks it's Mary. And she says, no, it's Bates. And at that moment, Carson thinking about Mary, but Mrs. Hughes thinks he talks about Bates. So I like this um, little parallel. And then my second favorite scene of this episode. Well, no, because I said that I really like, it's not my second, well, it's again, one of my favorite scenes. I always stop saying that. It's again, a scene between Cora and Violet. I do love their scene together. And again, Cora is so pretty. I already said that too. And it's in Cora's sitting room and it's the first time we see her sitting room. And again, she's so pretty. I love when she has really like pale pink or peachy color. I think it's really sweet on her. So, well, after what happened <laughs> the last time Cora saw Violet, she is not like completely pleased to see her mother-in-law. And when Violet comes in, she's like, I come in peace. And again, I love how this scene is made because uh, Violet, so this time she's the one sitting and Cora, she's, she stay standing. And I love what Violet says. I confess, I do not know if I would have had strength mentally or physically to carry a corpse the length of this house. But I hope I would have done. 
And I love this moment because in Cora, she's relieved because Violet is not really mad at her. And I am happy too because finally someone is acknowledging what she did. I mean, yeah, Cora, she, she carried a corpse. Thank you, Violet. She's saying it out loud. And then, you know, she's really, then she comes sitting with her and they talk about it. The only option is to minimize the damage. Or try to. The ambassador is dangerous. But then, how many people rarely go to the Turkish embassy? It only takes one. Well, we can't have him assassinated, I suppose. No, our only way forward is to get Mary settled as soon as possible. I have news on that score. Matthew has proposed. <gasps> my, my. Have she said yes? She hasn't said anything yet, except that she's going to have to tell him about Pamuk. For heaven's sake, why? She thinks to keep it secret would be dishonorable. And again, I can understand both ladies here to be like, just don't tell him. Tell him once you're married, because you need to get married. But I do understand Mary a bit, and I like her for wanting to tell him. She reads too many novels. I mean, one way or another, everyone goes down the aisle with half the story hidden. So I do have a question. I want to know what was her story, what what is half of her story hidden when she got married. Because we learned some stories about Violet in the future and in the second movie, Bananas. But we do not know things that happened before she got married. I want to know what Actually, I even want to know what are the hidden stories of Cora and Robert. No, if someone has ideas or theories about it, I would love to hear them. And so they come with a plan. If she refuses Matthew, they're going to take her to Rome to the other. Really, it's the plan. Say, okay, this is a nice plan. Everything will go according to plan. But obviously, we in May 1914. So we know that during the autumn, going to Italy, well, let's just say we already know it will not work out. <laughs> bananas and then you see how Cora she's very pleased that Violet is not against her and that she's not even mad at Mary thank you for not turning against her I know that you have rules and when people break them you find it hard to forgive I understand that and I respect it in this case Mary has the trump card what Mary is family I really love this scene because um Again, I think Cora, she is just relieved to finally share that with someone. And, and she is really glad to have Violet as an ally because Violet is a really powerful ally. And again, she's such a cutie, so pretty with that dress. I need to stop. But now is the moment for my music of the day. Well, so it's more just um, a chorus more than the whole music. That was Out of the Woods by Taylor Swift. And it's not Taylor's version because that version is not out yet. There's a bit of an anxiety in this song and in this chorus that I think kind of um, reflects what ha is happening in this episode. 
because they're really like, are we out of the woods? Are we in the clear yet? So it's about, you know, no longer being difficulty or danger, you know, being out of danger or being free of suspicion. And so the whole thing is like Bates being free of suspicion. We have Mary, literally Mary being out of the woods. Like, I think it's, it's, this is cool. I just asking, are we out of the woods with Mary's situation and the whole Pamuk scandal? I think with the whole, especially the whole Pamuk situation, there's been a lot of anxiety upstairs. Well, upstairs, anxiety for Cora and, uh, well, for Cora. And a bit Mary too. And so now to explain a bit my title, where they fall. Well, first, Sybil falls. She falls and she hits her head. But then you have Mary. She, like in this episode, she a bit falls from grace. Even if uh, Carson do not believe the story. Well, you know, she now she's damaged goods. But she also, she falls in love with Matthew. Then we have Edith that she's kind of, she's a bit falling for Stralen. Right now we have Bates who fall in disfavor, even if, they do want to believe everything he said. He still confessed that he was a thief. We had people falling apart. You know, we have Mrs. Papmore with her side, Cora, because poor her, everything, like the home, like Mary, this is just emotional roller coaster for her, Violet too. And anyone say like Robert, who's falling for what Sybil said, because she literally lied to him and he just said, okay, you can go. And I want to say there's um, an expression in French that is, which uh, means being dumbfounded and this is literally Violet when she <laughs> learns Mary's secret and even Robert with the whole thing with Sybil and I want to say this expression because fall in French is tomber so and this whole thing also makes me think about um, a French movie called La Haine where they say l'important c'est pas la chute c'est l'atterrissage so the most important is not the fall it's the landing and that made me think about um, a line from the show Sherlock, a line said by Jim Moriarty to Sherlock, when he says, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the landing. Because I do believe that now they're kind of all falling, but they have not landed yet. I don't know if you know what I mean, like, civil with politics is definitely not the end, and Robert, he's not ready for what's coming next. Edith, you know, she's, on, she's over the moon, but everything happen, is happening with Stralen. Again, not the end. Mary and Matthew, not the end. And Pamuk's Kendall, definitely not the end. And so just to quote again, Taylor Swift, in her song Gold Rush, she says, I don't like that falling feels like flying till the bone crash. So it's, everything comes together, you know, that the whole, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the landing. Some of them, they are falling, but it feels like flying. Like Edith, I think she's really, she's over the moon with everything happening with uh, Stralen. And even Cora and Violet, they fell and they thought they hit the ground. They have a solution with the Pamuskana, but, you know, they haven't landed yet. Even Mary, well, everything. Um, I don't know if you understand me. I hope you do. But yeah, that's why I want to call it the one where they fall. So yeah, they are not ready for what is going to happen in the next episode. They are not ready for what is going to happen in a couple of months. That would be the landing, I think. Bananas. So yeah, that's it for this episode. I hope it was not too long because there, there was a lot to talk about. And I hope you understood me because sometimes I, I think about things and it's really hard sometimes to express what you think in a way that is clear to everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. 
please don't hesitate to review, comment, send me a message. And then I want to say to every one of you who will go to the movies to see Downtown Be A New Era again, enjoy it. And to the one who still have to wait, hang in there. It's almost there. Like I said earlier, it's worth it. So I will see you next Sunday. Talk about the last episode of season one that I called The One With The Soaps. Until then, take care of yourself and don't forget. Vive le défense! Uh-huh.